Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. This is the law of Moses given to Israel. When you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's, let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 through 7. Here are Paul's words to Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add His blessing to the preaching of it today. Brothers and sisters, I do think that we are in a real treat, in for a real treat uh, with uh, this study of Paul's letter to, to Timothy. Uh, the closer I look at this epistle, and I've been familiar with it for years, of course, but as I study it more deeply, uh, the more excited I get about preaching through this book, I think it's going to be a very timely study for us here at Emmaus. As you know, in Sunday school, we are addressing questions relating to our responsibilities in the civil realm as citizens of a kingdom or nation of this world. But as we consider Paul's letter to Timothy, our focus is going to be directed towards our life together within Christ's church, which is the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom inaugurated now, which will be consummated at the end of time. Of course, life in these two kingdoms, the kingdoms or nations of this earth in which all Christians live, and the kingdom of heaven into which all who have faith in Christ have been called, these always overlap and they interrelate with one another. In fact, if we were to think carefully about the interrelationship between our life lived as citizens of this nation and our life lived as citizens of Christ's kingdom, 
I think we would have to admit that they are very much interrelated. These two realities cannot be untangled. We live one life, don't we? But that one life is lived as citizens of two kingdoms. Or to put it in another way, we live one life, but we live that one life in different spheres or realms. You, you feel this. You have one life to live, but you live it in, in different places and you fulfill different offices and responsibilities in this one life. We live in families. We live in political communities and we live our life out within the church. And I hope that you would agree with me, friends, that we are not to be three different people living in three different realms or spheres or two different people living in two different kingdoms. But we are to be one and the same person. We are to be authentic and sincere. We are to be genuine and always unhypocritical. We are not only to worship and serve Christ while in the church, but we are also to worship and serve Christ in the home and in the common political realm too. Now these distinctions that I'm making between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ, or the three spheres of family, society, and church, I think they are helpful distinctions, and, and they're certainly biblical distinctions. But they must not be misunderstood as if we were saying that these spheres and kingdoms are so distinct that they are unrelated. Indeed, they are intertwined with one another significantly. Life in one realm will affect life in the other. The kingdom of Christ will impact the kingdoms of this world and vice versa. And from time to time, you can really feel the tension, can't you? You can feel the tension that arises between being citizens in Christ's kingdom while also being sojourners here on earth, living in a civil realm. And it seems to me that we have felt the tension of our dual citizenship a little bit more than we have been accustomed to as of late. Would you agree with that? We felt the tension. And we should not be surprised by this as if some strange thing were happening to us. Truth be told, Throughout the history of the world, God's people have sometimes enjoyed peace and tranquility as they sojourned amongst the nations. For some Christians, the tension of their dual citizenship was hardly felt at all. Yes, they were tempted, as we all are. And yes, many in the world did consider their faith to be foolish, etc. These are common struggles that all of God's people face but they lived at peace, or at least relative peace. But for others, the tension was extreme. Let's think of Christ himself for just a moment. Christ lived with extreme tension. His own kinsmen delivered him to the Romans to be crucified because, among other things, he claimed to be the king of a kingdom. That's the thing that the Romans took issue with more than anything. The Jews wanted him crucified for many reasons, the, the, the primary one being that he made himself to be equal with God. But the Romans didn't like his claim that he was a king of a kingdom. That was a threat to them. The tension that Christ lived with was extreme. The apostles of Christ and the early church along with them felt the tension too. Many of them endured persecution of one kind or another. And so though we pray for peace and hope for peace, the church of Christ must be prepared to suffer in this world. And this is why Christ warned His disciples, saying, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. That is John 15, 18. I don't know what the future holds for Christians living in this country. That's an obvious statement, isn't it? 
I cannot predict the future. Will this nation continue down the path that the founding fathers set before it? One that seeks to honor all men as men made in the image of God. One that gives men the freedom to practice their religion without disturbance from governmental powers. Will this nation continue to pursue the ideal that men and women be honored as such no matter their race or creed? Never has this nation lived perfectly according to this ideal. Indeed, at times it has fallen far short of it. But this ideal is embedded at the very heart of our republic. Remember the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. It should sound familiar to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so this idea produced the freest society in the history of the world. Christians, along with those of other religious convictions have, generally speaking, been left free to worship as they please. And as a result, Christians living in this nation have felt relatively little tension as it pertains to their dual citizenship. And so will this nation continue to pursue this ideal? Or will we go in the direction that some within our society are trying to take it, constantly drawing attention to our differences rather than to what unites us, and allowing those who are strong to silence and oppress those who they disagree with. Only God knows what the future holds. I'm praying for our nation. I'm praying that our liberties will be preserved and even enlarged. I also intend to engage politically, that is to vote for liberty and to seek to persuade others to do the same. I think you ought to do this very thing, to pray and to seek to promote liberty within this nation. But what if it is the will of the Lord to judge this nation by giving her over to her sin, and by allowing unjust rulers to rule over us. What if that is the will of the Lord? To give us over to unjust rulers, men and women who govern with pride in their heart, and who give no attention or consideration to God or His moral law revealed in creation and in the Holy Scriptures. What then will we do? Well, I think the answer is that the church in this land will need to learn how to live with the tension that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live with throughout the world even today. They are exiles and sojourners and so are we, but they know it and feel it in ways that we have uh, not felt it as we have lived within this free society. The same could be said about many of the Christians who have gone before us. They too lived as exiles and sojourners, as do we, but many of them knew it and felt it in a way that most of us have not. Again, Christ lived with this tension. Paul, the apostle, lived with it. And so did Timothy, his true child in the faith. These lived with, within an earthly kingdom that had very little toleration for the kingdom of God and its claims. This is starting to feel like a real downer of a message, isn't it, at this point? And it's really not intended to be. In fact, I'm very hopeful concerning the future. I choose to be optimistic concerning the direction of our country. I pray that the Lord would have mercy on us. And much more importantly, my hope is in Christ. My hope is not in this country. My hope is not in our founding documents. My hope is not in a political party or a presidential candidate. My hope is in Christ and in His kingdom. That is where my hope lies, and that is where my peace is found. It, I hope the same is, is true for you, brothers and sisters. Furthermore, I am confident that Christ's church 
is well-equipped to thrive in societies that are free and open, and also in societies that are oppressive and closed. Christ's church is well-equipped to thrive in both kinds of societies. But if the church is to thrive in either of these types of societies, she must understand what she is and what she is called to do. Truth be told, there are many dangers for the church living in the midst of a free society. Have you ever thought of that? How easy it is for the church to grow complacent. How easy it is for her to lose sight of her mission and to forget how very distinct she is from the world. But the pressures that come upon the church living in an oppressive society, they're different. The church is pushed to the fringes of society. Her members are often deprived of worldly comforts and sometimes they are persecuted severely. In societies such as this, Christians will be tempted to abandon the everlasting glories of the kingdom of Christ so that they might enjoy the fleeting pleasures of this world. In both scenarios, the church had better know what she is and what she is called to do if she is to remain faithful. And I do believe that Paul's first letter to Timothy is going to help us in this. Here in verses 3 through 7, we immediately begin to learn about what the church is and what she is called to do. Again, Paul does not present this teaching in a systematic way, as if he is writing a systematic theology or something. He's just writing a letter to, to Timothy, his co-worker. But what he says to Timothy has massive implications for the church. What is she? What is she called to do? We learn a lot here in this opening passage. And, and two things are to be recognized. One, the church is a society born of the truth and called to defend and, and to promote the truth. That is one thing that she is. She is a society born of the truth and called to defend and promote the truth. And two, the church is a society of love. Let's consider these things one at a time. First of all, let us recognize that the church is a, is a family of truth, we might say. She is a family born of the truth. She is to preserve the truth and she is to promote the truth within the world. Notice what Paul commanded Timothy to do in verse 3. He said, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that is, in the church at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This was the work that Timothy was to do within the church. He was to, to urge or, or warn men not to teach different doctrine. We are to remember that Timothy was a co-worker of Paul's. He helped him plant many churches and he served as Paul's representative to churches that were in need that Paul wasn't able to, to visit for, for whatever reason. Timothy functioned like a pastor in these churches, but temporarily. His job, among other things, was to appoint elders or pastors to continue the work after he left. 2 Timothy 2 speaks to this transition that was to take place. Timothy and those who would continue his... Timothy um, was to hand his work off to those who would continue his work. And, and there we find the words of Paul. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so the work that Paul gave to Timothy would be entrusted to others, specifically elders who were considered faithful. And so what did Paul call Timothy to do? And by way of extension, what do the Scriptures call pastors to do within Christ's church to this present day? The first thing mentioned in this epistle is the proclamation and preservation of the truth. 
Timothy was to charge, or we might say order or command, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The implication, of course, is that there were some within the church of Ephesus doing this very thing. Now, this should not surprise us. Pick up and read any book in the New Testament, and you will discern that false teaching was a constant threat to the early church. We tend to think of the early church as a golden age, right? Where everything was blissful. If we could only get back to the early church, uh, that original church, the church where the apostles were, were present, then, then we will be without any trouble at all. Have you read the New Testament, brothers and sisters? Have you read the book of Acts? Have you read Paul's letters to the churches? The church from the very beginning was plagued with problems, plagued with sin. The threat of false teaching was, was very real to them. And the apostles of Christ also fought against false teachers constantly. In fact, you could even take up the Old Testament scriptures and read and you will see that false teaching has always been a threat to the people of God in every generation. And so do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when false teaching is something that we must contend with too. It is the job of pastors to contend with it. It is the job of the entire congregation, in fact. Together we are to be sure that no other doctrine is presented, is, is promoted within the church of God. Timothy charged certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I think we should reflect upon this statement a little bit, though. This little tiny statement says a lot. Different doctrine. Think of that little phrase. Different doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching, by the way. But command that people not teach anything other than what has already been taught is, is the idea. No other doctrine. And then the question we must ask is, different from what, Paul? Different from what? What is the standard? And the answer to that question, I think, is rather obvious. No teaching is to be permitted in Christ's church that differs from Paul's teaching. And if we were to press the matter further, we could say, no teaching is to be permitted that differs from the teaching of all the apostles, for they were unified in their doctrine. You can go to Galatians chapter 2, for example, and see evidence of this. All of the apostles of Christ were unified in their teaching. And to push it a step further, we could say that no teaching is to be permitted that is different from the teaching of Christ Himself. The apostles, after all, were committed to further not their own doctrine, but the doctrine of Christ. You can go to Luke chapter 24, where we gain our name. Emmaus, Reformed Baptist Church, right? Emmaus, the disciples on the road to Emmaus were taught by Christ there. Matthew chapter 28, in that great commission passage, we see that Christ commissioned His apostles to go and to, and to preach Christ, to make disciples, to teach them to observe all that He had commanded. So the teaching of the apostles is nothing more than a, a proclamation of, of the teaching of, of Christ. And we could push the matter even further and say that Christ Himself did not teach doctrine that was brand new and never before heard. But He viewed Himself as the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so when Paul wrote to Timothy saying, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not only does he mean do not allow any teaching that differs from mine, but also do not allow any teaching that differs from the teaching of Holy Scripture, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, the teaching of Christ as the fulfillment of these, 
and of his apostles sent out into the world as his special representatives to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach observance to all that Christ has commanded. And so, brethren, please understand this. The church of the living God is born by the truth of God's word. She grows by this truth. She is held together by this truth. And she is therefore called to preserve and promote this truth. Paul will say this very thing a little bit later in this letter to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Sound doctrine is vital to the church for many reasons. As I've just said, the church is born of the truth. She grows in her purity and maturity by the truth. But the truth of God's word does also preserve the unity and peace of the congregation. Verse 4 hints at this, I think. Here Paul continues, forbidding that any different doctrine be taught by forbidding the promotion of myths and endless genealogies, which, he says, promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Don't allow anyone to teach different doctrine, and specifically, in this instance, Timothy, there in Ephesus, do not allow them to promote these myths and endless genealogies. What were these myths and endless genealogies that were being promoted amongst the Ephesians? What were they exactly? Well, let me begin by simply defining the terms. Myths are legends, made-up stories, fables, and tales. And you know what genealogies are, don't you? A genealogy is simply a list of descendants traced from an ancestor. Now, certainly there is nothing wrong with reading a fairy tale to your children at bedtime. That is not what Paul is forbidding here. And certainly there is nothing wrong with researching your ancestry or the ancestry of some other person or group of people. But clearly these false teachers, whoever they were, were promoting myths and genealogies as if they were somehow central to the Christian faith and vital to the life of the church. And so stated differently, instead of preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus Christ, they were devoted to speculations regarding mythical tales and genealogical records. Students of the Bible and history are probably, they've wondered the thing that you are probably wondering right now, who exactly were these false teachers? What school of thought did uh, they belong to? Can we give them a name? Some do believe that these false teachers were promoting an early form of Gnosticism. The Gnostics claimed to have special knowledge and insight. You know, you had to be enlightened in, in order to be one of them. Uh, you can study Gnosticism for yourself on, on another time. Uh, their teaching, the teaching of the Gnostics, would come to prominence in the second century AD. And uh, the church in that age certainly had to contend with them. They were false teachers that the early church in the second century and onward had to contend with. But others believe that these false teachers were of a Jewish background. And this seems more likely to me. You will notice in verse 7, it is said of these teachers that they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The law that Paul refers to here is certainly the law of Moses. This will be proven, in fact, in the next sermon next week. And so these teachers, whoever they were, they promoted 
or they claimed to be. They made confident assertions uh, concerning their, their knowledge of, of the law of, of Moses. They claimed to be experts in the law of Moses. They, they confidently asserted that they knew how to properly interpret Moses, but at the heart of their doctrine were myths. These were probably extra-biblical legends regarding the life of the patriarchs, perhaps. They made those myths, those legends, kind of a central feature to their preaching. And also, they put genealogies there and gave a, a major emphasis to them. I think these were probably speculations drawn from the genealogical record of the Law of Moses. You know that there are many genealogies that are found in the book of Genesis, for example. And these false teachers, whoever they were, made much of that. And they tried to, I think, gain secret insight by studying these, these genealogies. Truth be told, we don't know exactly who these false teachers were, but we know enough, I think, from what Paul says here. Notice that these false teachers were bold. False teachers tend to be bold. They wouldn't get very far, far with their false teachings if they didn't make these confident assertions regarding their claims. They were probably even eloquent. They were probably filled with charisma, as false teachers tend to be. But Paul urged Timothy to warn them against teaching this different doctrine. Now, some might be wondering, who's to say that Paul and Timothy were right in their handling of the Old Testament and that these people were wrong? After all, at the end of the day, don't we simply have differing opinions? Paul and Timothy over here making their confident assertions. If you read Paul, you will see that he was indeed confident in his assertions. But then you have these other teachers over here making their confident assertions. How do we know which of these groups was correct in the things that they were asserting? And this is a valid question, I think. In fact, the same question can be asked regarding the differences of opinion that arise within Christ's church to this present day. How do we know whose interpretation of Scripture is correct? Now, to answer that question thoroughly would take some time. But for now, let me simply say this. Pay careful attention here, brothers and sisters. The Holy Scriptures are not merely a collection of individual and unrelated books written by many human authors over a long period of time. Rather, the Scriptures claim to have one author, namely God Himself, who inspired these human authors to write what they wrote. And one of the evidences for God being the author of Scripture is the way in which all of these individual books that were written by many human authors over a long period of time tell one story. They tell one unified story. And this story that I am here referring to can be summarized in different ways. It is the story of our creation, man's fall into sin, redemption in Jesus the Christ, and the consummation of all things at the end of time when all in Christ are brought to glory. The Holy Scriptures tell that story. Or we might tell the story in terms of promise and fulfillment. Certain things were promised long ago, but they were fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Or we might tell it in terms of the advancement of God's kingdom on earth. The kingdom was offered but rejected by Adam. It was then promised to Adam. 
It was prefigured in Israel. It was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection and will be consummated at the end of time. No matter how you tell the story, the covenants that God transacted with man are of central importance. Furthermore, as we read through the pages of Holy Scripture, we recognize that they present not only the words of Scripture themselves, but also a method of interpretation. Please note this. When we read the Scriptures and we see the progress of this story of redemption that I'm here referring to, we find not only the story itself, the words of Scripture itself, but also we find a method of interpretation. For example, David looked back upon the law of Moses and interpreted them in a particular way as he wrote the Psalms. And the prophets looked back upon David and Moses and interpreted them in a particular way. And Christ looked back upon the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, and He interpreted them in a particular way. He had a particular view of the Scriptures. What are they? Are they authoritative? How are they to be interpreted? Where, where do all of these Scriptures point ultimately? Even Christ Himself interpreted the Scriptures in a particular way. What did he do with them? He saw that he himself was the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Again, take up and read Luke chapter 24. And notice what Christ is doing there after his resurrection with his disciples. He is having a Bible study with them. And he is teaching how all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms find their fulfillment in him. There is a method of interpretation that is being established Throughout the history of redemption and as the scriptures are given first to Moses and then through Israel after them, the Psalms and the prophets being written. And this method of interpretation was passed along to the apostles. That's what Christ was doing there with his disciples on the road to Emmaus and in Emmaus and as he returned to Jerusalem, he's, he's giving them not only the scriptures, the, the, the scriptures themselves, but he's saying, here's how you are to view them. Here's you, how you are to interpret them. Here's how you are to preach them. This is the message. This is the gospel that is to be proclaimed. Christ crucified and risen. Christ the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the gospel that is to be proclaimed. This is the gospel that is to be applied to the people of God in every successive generations. And the apostles of Christ were faithful to do this. They themselves proclaimed this message. They even wrote scriptures themselves. They passed these scriptures the scriptures of the Old Testament and now the new to the next generation of pastors and teachers along with this method of interpretation embedded it within all of it. And so we are not free, brothers and sisters, to, to, to come up with the truth all on our own. We are not free to take the scriptures and to handle them as if they are a wax nose that could be twisted in this direction and that to suit our, our, our passions. But we are to proclaim the scriptures as the prophets and as the apostles and, and, and as Christ himself proclaimed them. We are to follow this example that has been handed on down to us. Perhaps you have noticed that false teachers quote scripture a lot. If you've ever interacted with false teaching, you will notice that they 
claim to love the Bible. They make confident assertions, one of the most common ones being, we are biblical. Well, how do we know? How do we know if they're really biblical? Does the citation of lots of scripture texts make someone biblical? Certainly not. In fact, the scriptures can be used to promote false teachings. After all, these false teachers in Ephesus were probably reading the genealogical record there in Genesis saying, we are biblical. What we are teaching is scripture truth. And yet Paul the Apostle says, no. No different doctrine is to be proclaimed within Christ's church. So how do we know? They claim to be biblical. They are quoting from Scripture as they promote their teaching. Well, one thing we must learn to do is to ask the question, are they handling the Scriptures in the way that the Psalms, the prophets, Christ and His apostles handled it? Are they telling the same story or are they telling some other story? Are they preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the law, the Psalms and the prophets? Are they showing Him to be the anti-type to all the types found in the Old Testament? Are they telling of the arrival of the kingdom? Are they preaching the glories of the gospel, the marvelous truth that the Redeemer has come and that salvation is found in Him? Or are they distracted with some other empty message which leads only to empty speculations and ultimate division within Christ's church? There's nothing new under the sun, friends. How easy it is for the church, even to this present day, to get off track and to devote themselves to endless speculations about things other than Christ and His kingdom as revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. I'll leave it to you to think of examples of this. There are many within the modern church, I'm afraid. The church is so easily derailed, distracted from the gospel of Jesus Christ, pure and undefiled. That is what is to be preached. But the church, even today, is distracted with so many things. This little phrase, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, um, it actually brought to my mind the end of our time at the church that many of us were driven out of over nine years ago. Do you all remember that? Some of you do. One of the refrains that I heard over and over again was, Doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. Anybody remember that refrain? I heard it a lot. Joe, doctrine brings division, but Jesus unites. If we would just focus on, on Jesus, we would be united. The meaning is that when doctrine is taught within the church, it brings division to the church. But again, if we would only focus on Jesus, then we would remain unified. I, I thought that was a ridiculous statement nine years ago. And even more so today, even more so today. In fact, we have found the very opposite to be true, haven't we, here at Emmaus? Having a robust confession of faith and teaching biblical doctrine has served to preserve and strengthen our unity. And this is also the clear teaching of Scripture. God's truth does not divide, it unifies His church. Speculation over things not revealed in Scripture will divide. But doctrine, that is teaching according to the Scriptures, biblical teaching, true biblical teaching, unites the people of God together. The church is born out of the truth, she is sanctified by the truth, and she is also united in the truth. Amen? Notice what Paul says regarding the fruit of this false teaching. Myths and never-ending discussions about genealogies. What do they produce? They promote speculations 
rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. To speculate is to form a theory without firm evidence. These myths and genealogies could not provide a firm foundation for the people of God to build their faith upon, for they were empty stories and a misuse of the genealogical record found within the law of Moses. These myths and genealogies produced nothing but empty and never-ending speculation within the congregation. Could you imagine living in a congregation like that? Where the gospel is not emphasized or preached, but rather strange things are done with Holy Scripture. It's, it's speculation that's being promoted within the church. A talk about things unsure, talk about things unrelated to the gospel. What, what an empty existence this would be. They produce speculations, Paul says, and the end result certainly is division. It is division. We see here in verse 6 that Paul um, says that when something other than the true gospel is promoted, uh, vain discussions are the result. Vain or empty discussions dominate church life. But notice here that what Paul wants to see is stewardship from God that is by faith. Instead of empty speculations, let us promote the truth. Let us preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might see stewardship from God that is by faith. A steward is a household manager. He is a servant in his master's home whose responsibility it is to set the house in order and to keep it that way. Can you imagine the work of a steward? His job being to set the house in order, to make sure that everything is in its proper place physically, that the finances are in order, that the servants are managed, that the food is prepared and set before the master. All of that would be under the purview of a steward. He is a household manager. Set the house in order and keep it that way is the steward's job. Timothy and other ministers of the gospel are to view themselves as stewards within the household of God. Their job is to establish and maintain order in the church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This, by the way, is one of the qualifications for an elder. He is to manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you see the connection here? Before a man be called to pastoral ministry, he should demonstrate that he's able to keep his own household in order. Doing it there shows that he might be able to do it within Christ's church. A pastor is called to manage God's household and to establish and maintain good order there. And, and what will produce good order? What will produce it? What will produce this good order? Not myths and genealogies leading to speculation and vain discussions, but rather the truth of the gospel will produce good order. Sound doctrine will produce good order. Faith in God and in His Word will produce good order. The church is a family of truth. Secondly, lastly, and rather briefly, the church is a family of love. And this is what Paul says in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I love that verse. I hope that you love it too. Put it to memory, brothers and sisters. The aim of our charge. Here's what I'm aiming at, Paul says. This is my objective to see love within the household of God, to, to promote love, love not of a superficial kind, but love that issues 
from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is Paul's objective. As he preached the gospel, as he preached sound doctrine within Christ's church, this is what he wanted to produce within Christ's church. And he's passing the same thing on to, to Timothy. No different doctrine, but rather the truth of the gospel so that, so that love might be the result. Not vain speculations, empty speculation in vain discussions. I think this is a very beautiful and succinct way to state the objective of the minister of the gospel. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. And what is love? What is love? To say that love is love, as many in our culture do today, is to say nothing at all. Instead, we must confess that God is love. And if someone is to love truly, first they must love God supremely. And also the Christ that He has sent. Only then will they be able to love their neighbor to the utmost. But what does it look like to love God and man? To love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is to keep God's commandments. And so this is Paul's aim. Love. This is what he desires to produce within the Christian congregation. Not idle speculation and vain discussion, but love. Love for God and love for one another. I do not mind uh, devoting a little less time to this point today, for really we're going to pick up here in the next passage where Paul defends the goodness of the law, provided that one uses it lawfully. There in verses 8 through 11, which we will come to uh, next week, we will be given an overview of God's law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And do not forget what Christ said when He was asked to identify the most important law. Make it simple for us, Jesus. What is the most important law of the law of God? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is Paul's objective, to, pr- to produce love for God and love for one another within the Christian congregation. This is another way of saying that obedience to God's moral law, righteous and, righteousness and holiness is His aim. If we are God's children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and adopted as sons, then it follows that we should be holy. This is what Peter says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is the Apostle's objective. When he forbids false doctrine and commands that true doctrine be preached, his aim is to produce love. Notice it is not his aim simply to have a well-educated congregation. Right? A bunch of people who have their heads filled with sound doctrine. That is not his aim. Ultimately, his aim is love. Love for God and man, which is also conformity to God's law from the heart. I think you could probably hear the echo of Christ's words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In Paul's words, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's aim is not to produce a superficial love or the appearance of love within the Christian congregation, but true love, mature love, love that issues from a heart made pure. First of all, Paul teaches that love, that for love to be true, it must issue from a pure heart. The heart is the center of man's being. It is the true person. And if the heart is impure, our love will be impure. It will be tainted with selfish ambition, with pride, with greed, and all manner of pollution. 
And so if you wish to love God truly, if you wish to love your neighbor as yourself, then your heart must be pure. It must be made pure by the blood of the Lamb and by the regeneration of the Spirit, but it also must be kept pure. Brothers and sisters, if you allow bitterness and unforgiveness to reside in your heart, it will pollute your love. If you are jealous, it will pollute your love. If your heart has been overrun with the anxieties of life, your love will be stifled. Paul's aim is love that issues from a pure heart within the congregation. Secondly, true love must issue from a good conscience. The conscience is that part of man that is able to discern between right and wrong. Our conscience condemns us when we do wrong and it commends us when we do right. The conscience of sinful man is not good but is seared because of sin. It is twisted out of shape so that we often call evil good and good evil. And if we are to love God and man truly, then our conscience must be good. We have a conscience because we are made in the image of God. Our conscience is corrupt because of the sin of Adam, but it is renewed in Christ by His Word and by His Spirit. And even those in Christ must keep the conscience pure and good by doing that which is good and turning from that which is evil. Again, Paul's aim is love that issues from a good conscience within the Christian congregation. Three, True love must issue from a sincere faith. It is only through faith in Christ that our hearts can be pure and our conscience good. And it is only through faith in Christ that we can love, worship, and serve God in a way that is pleasing to God. And so apart from faith in Christ, we stand guilty before Him. If we are to love the brethren, then we must have sincere faith. Faith that is genuine and lacking in pretense. For it is our faith in Christ that binds us together truly. By faith we are together united to Christ. By faith we are together adopted into God's family. By faith we have together been set apart in this world to worship and serve the Father. And Paul's aim is to make our faith strong and sincere so that we might love God truly and be bound together in love within the church. Brothers and sisters, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim the truth in this congregation and to drive away false teaching. Father, I pray that as your truth is preached, as it is promoted in this place, that it would have the proper effect upon us, that we would be sanctified, that it would make us holy and and pure that it would produce love within us, love for you, God, and love for one another, and that we would be unified and at peace, O Lord. Father, I pray that in the coming weeks we will think clearly about the church. What a marvelous thing it is. It is the household of you, the living God. We, being your children now, call you, Father. We are set apart. Lord, help us to live as we have been called to live, as your people. May your truth be promoted here. May we love you and one, another, and one another supremely. And Father, even if we live in the midst of a, a world that hates the truth and hates your church, may we be found faithful. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us and purify us further. We ask that you would add to our number, O Lord. As we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom We pray that your spirit would work to bring more and more into the number. Have mercy upon us, Lord. We pray it in Christ's name and all of God's people say, Amen.